This is the B Report. Hey everyone, welcome to the Bee Report for Friday, June 26, 2020. I am your host, Matt Kelly. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about mowing lawns, or rather, not mowing lawns, for an entire month and the impact it can have on urban bees. You may have heard about No Mow May, an initiative from Plant Life in the UK which encourages people to stop mowing their lawns for an entire month. One of the communities participating in this initiative was Appleton, Wisconsin. And Israel Del Toro, an assistant professor at Lawrence University, went out and surveyed the bees of Appleton at the end of Nomo May. So he and I are going to chat about the fieldwork, the results, and what it was like working with city government to make all of this happen. But first, let's do that thing we always do, the weekly news update, keeping you connected to the world of bees. Happy Pollinator Week, everybody. I hope it's being good to you, and I hope you're being good to it. Plenty of bee enthusiasm going around on the socials this week. My favorite item so far is from Hella Bee Nerd on Twitter. It's a slow-mo video of a leafcutter bee making the final cut while dangling mid-air, and then instantly taking flight, a super little fun video to see. However, Charlotte DeKaiser, also on Twitter, raised the question of whether or not Pollinator Week has become a bee-washing opportunity for large companies. Quote, I'm hesitant to jump on hashtag pollinator week and provide my expertise and best bee picks for free. This week is supposed to bring greater awareness to the importance of pollinators, but looking at the latest tweets, it's mostly being used for advertising. I have some thoughts. You can read her thread to see what her thoughts are on the matter. The administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler signed a proclamation designating the week of June 22nd as National Pollinator Week here in the United States. The agency says Wheeler is the first administrator to sign such a proclamation. However, the EPA has continued to approve and expand the use of pesticides that are harmful to bees, including neonicotinoids, sulfoxiflor, and flonisamid. The agency has also sought to circumvent the Endangered Species Act in regard to how it approves and regulates pesticides. So, you know, context, I guess. The Guardian is reporting that a coalition of environmental groups in the United Kingdom are calling on the national government to, quote, seize the day and establish a national nature service 
to restore wildlife and habitats in that country. The coalition has a list of over 300 projects that are ready to go, including flower meadows and tiny forests in cities. The coalition also believes that a national nature service would create 10,000 jobs and be part of a green recovery from the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Entomologists of Color announced on Twitter that the Entomological Society of America has donated 100 two-year memberships to the group to help diversify the field of entomology. And also on Twitter, John Mola announced that an early career pollination ecologist database is being assembled online. This is to help people in the field network, find reviewers, search for candidates, and so on. You can enter your own professional information when you have the chance. The BBC is reporting that researchers from Nottingham Trenton University have decoded honeybee queen toots and quacks in the hive. When new queens are ready to leave their cells, they start quacking. However, when one finally emerges, she will change her communication to tooting. This lets the worker bees know that they should keep the other queens sealed in their cells, which prevents a fight to the death from happening between the newly emerged queens. And finally today, soap bubbles could assist with pollination. A study from the Japan Advanced Institute of Science and Technology found that a bubble solution made with the right surfactant and optimized pH, calcium, other minerals, and chemicals was effective at retaining pollen grains on the thin film of the bubbles, then transporting them to the targeted flowers and facilitating germination. Soap pollination also required fewer pollen grains than other methods did to be effective. And that is the weekly news update. Links to all of these stories are in the show notes. Israel Del Toro, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are in the world of bees? Yeah, I feel like I'm a real nobody in the world of bees, to be honest. And this is sort of my first sort of voyage into understanding bee biodiversity. Uh, previous to working at with bees here at Lawrence, I primarily worked with ants, actually. And so I did all my dissertation, my undergrad, my grad school and postdoc work all on ants and ant biodiversity and ant community ecology. But it wasn't until I got to Lawrence that I really started working with bees uh, I figured, hey, you know, what are bees if not ants with wings? And you you were a little tongue-in-cheek about this. Um, but, I mean, was was it really just sort of on a whim that you switched to bees? Was it really just like, yeah, <laughs> that'd be cool? Or, or yeah. was there really sort of like, a, was there an actual sort of event where it was like, oh, bees? Yeah, no, okay. So I, I guess the big event was sort of my first year here at Lawrence when I really wanted to get some ant projects going. And they were sort of like my bread and butter type of projects on ecosystem ecology or community ecology. But every student that I kept coming, that I kept, came in contact with coming to work in my lab, they're like, oh, I really want to study bees. I really want to study bees. So it was really driven by the students. 
Uh, and at some point, I just gave in and said, "Okay, let's do it. You know, let's let's start learning about about native bees." And I originally wasn't going to be working on honeybees. Uh, I was really aimed at looking more more at native wild urban bees, um, and that's that's what really hooked me. Is just the astonishing diversity. I mean, the same thing that hooked me with ants. You know, when I first realized that there were all these species of ants and we only ever saw a fraction of them, when then I realized that we the same pattern was true with bees. I was I was instantly hooked. Well, and you said something very specific there. You said um, native urban bees. So is is the <laughs> is is the urbanness of the bees that you're interested in? Uh, is that kind of a key component of it? Yeah. So one thing that I really wanted to do was work in urban ecosystems. I think they're fascinating and they're a great educational tool. Uh, part of what we do in our lab is try to interact with citizen scientists as much as we can. So many of the projects that we have ongoing, things like the Appleton Pollinator Project or the BYOBs project, are are, are really reliant on uh, citizen scientists to help us collect data and big, broad data sets that we can tell a real interesting ecological story with. Um, and so to do that and to maximize that opportunity, I figured that working in urban ecosystems was a great way to go. And so I've been learning a lot about biodiversity in your backyard, essentially. What are the species that live there? And, you know, what sort of things are they doing? What are they pollinating? Are they providing an essential ecosystem service? All those questions are questions that my lab tries to tackle. And so what do we presently know about urban bees in Wisconsin? That's a good question. Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, as you might suspect, most of what we know about bees in general in Wisconsin come from agricultural studies and often focus on the pollination ecosystem service. Now, we do know a little bit about the overall biodiversity statewide. We have about 500 bees registered for the state of Wisconsin and recorded in the state of Wisconsin. And over the last three years or so, we've done repeated intensive sampling across various green spaces in the Fox Cities area, where Appleton is the largest city. Uh, and we've come across an inventory of close to 100 different species of bees in, in urban green spaces. Hmm. So we know that we have about one-fifth of the state's records within easy access uh, in the Fox Cities area. And, and just to be clear, you've documented a fifth. There could be more. Is that... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair to say. I mean, you know, we, we do pretty repeated and systematic and standardized sampling at multiple parks and nature reserves uh, it, within the city and in suburban areas. And we're doing a pretty good job of what's what we're, what we're documenting there. So you're doing regular sampling in yep. these urban areas. That's right. Yeah. And we want to try and do that pretty frequently. We want to do that on a sort of schedule. So every month we try to go out there starting roughly around late April and then going all the way to about October. And we just go out, set up a series of uh, yellow pan traps and blue vein traps, do some sweep netting, and then just collect and document the biodiversity that's out in these urban areas. And how long have you been doing that? Our first sampling year was 2017. So this is going to be year three of sampling. What is what what is the the sort of um, topography of Appleton like? I, I don't even have a sense of that. Is it fairly? Is it a fairly green city? Is it a fairly gray city? What's what's it like? 
You know, I think Appleton is your pretty standard upper Midwest sort of town. We take a lot of pride in having beautiful manicured lawns and uh, parks that, you know, are sort of your stereotypical golf course like <laughs> park with few trees, lots of lawn open, open and, and available. And that's sort of I mean, in, in that respect, Appleton is relatively green. But Appleton also has a really strong community of people that care about biodiversity conservation and issues like climate change and protecting endangered and threatened species. We're really big on our birds and our trees. So Appleton's a bird city, a tree city, a bee city. So, you know, that tells me that the community cares about these environmental initiatives that protect and enhance biodiversity in our, in our urban ecosystem. And so what is No Mo May and what is this fieldwork that you just completed? Yeah, so No Mo May is actually an initiative started by an organization out in the UK called Plant Life. It's a non-for-profit organization uh, and they do some really great uh, education and outreach activities, including things like the Every Flower Counts initiative and No Mow May, where they basically asking people to not mow their lawns for the month of May in order to provide early season foraging resources for pollinators. Uh, but the idea is essentially the same. We asked the citizens of Appleton, a city of about 70,000 people, uh, to not mow their lawns for the month of May. And this was a totally volunteer opt-in type of program. Uh, but we explained to them that this, the goal of this project was essentially to provide that early season forage for our pollinators. And people were generally very, very supportive of it. They were excited to figure out new ways in which they might be able to help the bees. And this wasn't really a hard sell for the people of the community. I think, you know, they're like, oh, well, I don't have to mow the month of May. This is great. I'll be the lazy mower for for a month uh, and and at the same time be helping out the bees. So um, they, we were really, really excited about that. Um, so No Mo May started off here in Appleton. We really kicked it off early this year, uh, but it, we went through a few iterations and worked closely with city government to, to get it approved. And starting on May 1st, people started to let their lawns grow and we got some really cool data out of it. And how, how did you collect that data? Yeah, so data collection was standardized. Uh, we obviously, uh, we had a total of uh, 435 people registered within the city of Appleton. Um, obviously, we couldn't make it to all 435 properties within the span of a week. So what we did is we subsampled. We selected 20 uh, homes uh, or properties, uh, five different neighborhoods around town. And we we selected also immediately adjacent city park properties uh, to those homes. So uh, parks that were regularly mowed through the month of May. What that allowed us to do is compare the homes uh, adjacent to the parks and see if there were more bees in those lawns than there were in those immediately adjacent parks. We used, uh, again, we went to citizen scientists, reached out to the community, and we had a team of about a dozen volunteers that came out with us to these 20 homes over the course of the last week of May. And we went through and just did standardized sweep netting. So we standardized by area. So if I, I, a person decided to, say, 
protect or not mow 400 square meters of their lawn, they would get a longer period of sampling than somebody that only protected 100 square meters of lawn. So mm. based on area, we went ahead and did our sweep netting. And your collecting methods were kind of unique. You did live ID and release in the field. So we didn't want to go counter to sort of the mentality of bee conservation. So we really wanted to avoid killing bees if possible at, at all costs. So what we would do is we would net the bees in the field and stick, stick them to the side in a mason jar. And then at the end of our sampling period, I would go through and identify as, mu as much as I could of the bee material as possible um, in, in a relatively short period of time. Uh, once we did the identifications in the field, then we re-released those bees back to their uh, wild urban habitat habitats. We did end up keeping maybe a dozen or so bees uh, that were just nearly impossible to tell in, in the field and really required microscopes and mounting uh, to, to be able to conclusively say what they were. So we did take a few bees, but we try to minimize that as much as possible. And I'm just curious, um, how was that in terms of field work? Did it make your life easier? Did it make your life harder? And, and I mean, did you photograph each bee to document it so we can have concrete evidence? Mm -hmm. We did take photographs of uh, of samples at multiple sites, uh, but you know, pretty soon you start to get a good eye for things. You know, the time that's third time you see a Melisodes bimaculata, you know it, <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, that's what this is again. Or you know, some things like honeybees and and bumblebees are pretty identifiable on the spot. Uh, a couple of things require a little bit of tinkering, uh, so I had like field glasses or a loop to take a look at, at, at some uh, at some finer details. But I'm pretty confident in the sort of identification that we made. And I, I, I again, go back to, you know, having a good, re well-curated reference collection came in really, really handy here um, because this, this allowed me to take a specimen that we collected within the last couple of years and say, like, yes, this is definitely the bee that I am looking at right now. Advantages of this uh, of this type of data collection is that our data is ready to go almost right off the bat. You know, I could come home at the end of the day, enter some data on my computer, and do my analysis the next day. And it's a relatively straightforward analysis for for a study design like Nomo May. Um, and so it made the analyses relatively easy and straightforward to work with. So I, that that I really liked about this type of sampling. You know, my experience with collecting and sampling has always been, you know, you get your samples, you bottle them, you euthanize them, you pin them, and then you ID them. ID them yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, that's the workflow. And I guess, you know, I, even from a workflow perspective, did this slow things down? Did it, did it not, you know, is it just a matter of adjusting your workflow to the right way? A little bit. You know, I think you just build it into your timetable. You realize that you're not going to move as fast as you might want to from site to site to site. Originally, um, our goal was to hit up 35 different homes around the area uh, within the span of a week. <laughs> and then once I took into account how many citizen scientists volunteers I had and how many uh, and especially after that first day of sampling, how many homes we can do within the span of a full day. You know, you just adjust and mm. you're like, okay, well, my new sample size instead of 30, 33, 35, 
is going to be 20. And you just have to be okay with that because that's all you can physically do in that amount of time. So you just got to adjust and go with the flow. I mean, that's part of field work, right? Is it, nothing ever goes as originally planned. And once you actually get into the reality of the field, there's only so much you can do. Right. Well, in, in, in walk down this road with me for just a little bit of ways here. Um, mainly cause I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Um, taking this approach to be identification in the field so you can ID and release also presumes that you have someone who is competent and confident in doing the identification. The identification. Yep. Yep. I, I agree. And, you know, I'm not a B-taxonomist. I'm, I'll be the first person to say that, you know. And so I rely on those identifications from experts, expert expert B-taxonomists, to give me valid IDs for my reference collection, which then I can figure out, okay, I can now learn the difference between the 12 different lazy blossom species that we're likely to encounter in our neighborhoods and use those uh, those identification or those traits to separate and identify species on the spot. You know, I do have some experience in working with insect taxonomy before, and, you know, I know how to use your key and how to uh, identify based on key morphological traits. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that I can do that on the field, on the spot, if I have a reasonable reference collection and the right resources available to me. Uh, and obviously I've, I've gotten to know these, the populations of these bees in, in Appleton and the Fox cities over the last few years of sampling them. So you just, you, you go and you, collect as much data with as much accuracy as you possibly can. The downside to this is obviously reproducibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like, can I, can I verify Israel's collection or data? Uh, it, it's, it's more complex now, right? Like there's no reference. I didn't, I, for this project, I don't have a reference collection that I can provide that says, oh yeah, these are all the bugs that we sampled and that we caught in this particular study. Uh, this is different to other studies like our green space sampling study where we do have that reference collection available. And I guess another concern potentially would be if someone who has the confidence but not the competence does this, we could get mis <laughs> we could get misidentifications, right? That's right. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I'm still learning and I'm not saying that the data is perfect, but I feel really good with the identifications that our team made uh, and that, you know, just because we are relying on such a well-curated source. And so what, what did you end up finding as a result of this? Once we did that and tallied up uh, the number of bees and the different species of bees present in these yards, we found overall that the abundance of bees or the number of bees was about five times higher in yards, in people's yards, than they were in comparable mode urban spaces. That, that mm. is those parks that we measured. And the diversity of bees or the species richness of bees was about three times higher in people's yards relative to adjacent urban mode spaces. Uh, my, one of my other hats is data nerd. And so I, I, I tend to spend a lot of time thinking about environmental covariates that could be explaining some of the biodiversity patterns that we see in the city. Uh, and so one of the things that we did is collected as much environmental data as we could 
uh, while measuring, while, while doing our bee sampling. And one of the things we did was measure the amount of area that uh, folks protected in their individual yards. Uh, and then um, we also did a flower inventory in their yards. And so we went through their yards and made basically a species checklist of every every plant that we saw in bloom in uh, in their garden during that final week of May. Uh, we also did a percent cover of how much area was actually grass relative to floral uh, plant diversity, and we tossed everything into a linear uh, model, uh, GLM, uh, generalized linear model, uh, and we basically looked at the most informative predictors of bee diversity. And as it turns out, uh, it's not very surprising, but the most important predictor for bee abundance and bee diversity was the amount of area that was not mowed. So bigger areas have more bees and more species of bees. Second, the second most informative variable was the diversity of flower species in people's yards. Uh, and, and the more flower, the more flowering species that you have, the more bees, bee uh, species you're also going to attract. Again, not a surprise. Yep, not a surprise. Uh, but now we have some concrete numbers that tell us, okay, you know, we can set, we can expect this effect uh, if you uh, protect more area, then more bees should be able to occupy that space. And it also makes the argument for doing this in future years and encouraging neighbors to sort of combine their lawn efforts. So rather than having one isolated little lawn protected, what if a whole block went out and protected all of their lawns and let their whole lawns go for the month of May? Then, you know, instead of having one tiny little lawn, you have a, cont a large continuous area that presumably should be able to host more and more bees. Was there anything about what you discovered that was a surprise to you? It's a good question. Um, I was actually really surprised with the different types of flowers that that were out and about during the like that. It, the, the, the bee story was pretty straightforward, but the flower story was really interesting because a lot of these things aren't supposed to be blooming yet. Hmm. But I have a feeling that, you know, us being in an urban habitat surrounded by a lot of black concrete uh, in, you know, pretty well-developed area, um, we're seeing a little bit of a heat, urban heat island effect that is sort of accelerating the phenology of some of these flowering plant species. Of course, we had all the big common uh, plant species that you might expect in a no-mow lawn, but we had other things out in bloom as well. Uh, we had uh, something called Creeping Charlie that was really, really, I mean, uh, we just kept catching bees on that left and right. We had a lot of clover, uh, shepherd's purse, and even some Canada thistle, uh, which is really a late bloomer, but in some yards it was in full bloom. Not not necessarily a good thing since Canada thistle is an invasive non-native species. Right, right. Um I'm curious why you chose to compare no-mow lawns with mowed parks as opposed to comparing no-mow lawns with mowed lawns. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And it comes down to um, participation from the public. <laughs> mm. uh, so if we're going to someone's yard that's participating in no-mow may, chances are they're going to be really excited to have us there. 
to sample B biodiversity. Um, whereas individuals that chose not to participate in NOMOME were a little more reluctant uh, to allow us onto their property. And so it didn't make for, it, it essentially being a, ended up being a sample size issue, mm. right? It's, we couldn't get enough representation from mowers to let us into their yards uh, to, to have something meaningful to say. So what we did the next best thing that we could do is we picked a city park, we knew the city park mowing regime. Another advantage of mowing of collecting in the city parks that we selected is that they're part of our long-term survey in the city of Appleton. So we've been going to those parks since 2017, and we have a really good handle on what bee species are likely to be there. So we knew the diversity there pretty well uh, a priori, and and uh, it made it a little bit easier on our on our sampling regime. And I guess. Um... You know, the question with, I think, any research, but particularly with, um, it's something I keep coming back to again and again with bee research and insect research, um, is this idea of baseline. And it sounds like you have some really um, good baseline data based on the surveys you've been doing since 2017. Um are the communities, and I guess, correct me if I'm wrong on that, is, I mean, it's fairly good baseline data, you would say? Yeah, I think, you know, once we look at things like species accumulation curves and our co sample coverage of the biodiversity in Appleton, I would be pretty comfortable saying we have a handle on about 90% of the biodiversity that occurs within the city. So understanding that we've got good baseline data, we now have this really interesting data from Nomo May. Um, I guess, broadly speaking, based on all of your information um, that you have at this point, how, how comparable are the bee communities, generally speaking, in parks versus lawns in Appleton? Yeah, that's a really interesting sort of beta diversity type of question, right? We're thinking, okay, what what species are shared between nomo habitat and a, and, a, and, a, and a habitat that is frequently disturbed on a regular basis? And as you might expect, those those the bees that are in those mode habitats or extremely disturbed habitats uh, are essentially a subset of what could be found in those no-mo lawns. We didn't really find unique species associated with mode habitat or disturbed habitat specialists. Um, you know, I was really thinking that perhaps we might see more eusocial bees in uh, those more disturbed habitats. So we might get more um, bumblebees or honeybees, uh, but that was not the case. You know, our honeybee abundances and bombus, uh, bumblebee abundances were pretty comparable between the two habitat types. Yeah. And I guess, you know, my real question is, is in, in a general sense, you would say that the bee communities that you would find in a lawn generally in Appleton would be the same sort of bee community you would find in a park ecosystem in Appleton. Like there there it's on a, on your average day whether somebody's mowing or not, they're not going to be radically that's, different. No, yeah, I think that's right. I think the idea here is that, you know, if on a regular mowing sort of schedule, you're probably likely to see the same species in your backyard as you might see going into uh into your neighborhood park. Uh, but if you allow that opportunity for those extra foraging resources to um to start to show up and go into bloom, then you're going to start to see new species uh, popping up. And and I guess maybe this is the million dollar question. 
presuming that everybody's doing their regular mowing, we stop for a month, we let things grow. Suddenly we're seeing a more robust community in these no mow areas. Mm -hmm. Where are those bees coming from? That's a good question. And where are they coming from? Where are they nesting? And are they actually living in these lawns or just using the foraging resources and in these lawns? And right now, all we can say is that they're actually just using the foraging resources that become available in these no-mo areas. Typically, most of the biodiversity of uh, urban bees that we're seeing are ground nesting species. Uh, so you think about your like mason bees, you think about your... Um, some of your leaf cutter bees, you think about some of your sweat bees, all of these are some of the weirdest and coolest things that we're finding in these lawns. But I don't think that their nesting habitat is necessarily changing. It's just their foraging habitat that is preferable during those no-mo areas. And they don't have relatively large foraging radiuses. I mean, you think of a little lazy glossum, and I believe I was reading a couple of papers here where their expected foraging radius is less than 100 meters. So they're here. They're relatively close by. Uh, but, you know, we often don't 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 see them in the, as high numbers as we've seen them as a result of no moment. And, and, and that's what I was going to get at, because they're they're they don't go far. So they've got to be somewhere nearby to take advantage of this. And and that to me is, is the sort of, that's just the fascinating thing. They're tucked in the corner somewhere in those areas. And then when we give them the opportunity, pop, there they are. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, think about where these things are nesting. You know, you think you have your ground dwellers, but you also have dwellers that nest in rotting and decaying wood or in stone cavities. So that's like essentially all of your city sidewalks. Uh, you know, they're here somewhere <laughs> uh, and they're notoriously difficult to track. You know, they're not they're, they're not as obvious as my good old ants <laughs> where I can say like, oh, here's an anthill. Uh, this is great. Uh, these are these are much more cryptic, uh, but they're they, they are present in the city. We can say fairly confidently that because we have a baseline for this area, because we have. um because we know that the bee communities are fairly comparable between parks and lawns, that the no mow may really did make a difference in terms of richness and abundance. Yeah, I think that's the that's the big take home and exciting part of this story. You know, in terms of richness and abundance, no mow may brought uh, brought pollinators to people's yards. And of course, there's, you know, part of this survey that we also conducted with people is asking them, did you see more bees or more flowers in your yard? And of course, that's uh, totally subjective and filled and rife with observation bias. But people are, you know, spending time out, look outside, looking at the biodiversity in their yards. And I think that's the exciting part, just introducing people to the little things that they might have not noticed previously in their yards and boosting those numbers so that, you know, we, we can have a more sustainable and environmentally conscious community. One of the things you wrote in your paper was, and I'm going to quote this, while our findings cannot conclusively attribute increases in bee abundance and richness to no mo may. And then you went on to explain some of your results. I guess, why was it important to point out that you cannot conclusively say that the changes you observed were a result of nomo may was this just our was just this just our normal um scientific well it depends 
<laughs> or was there was there a real reason you wanted to put that in there? You know, I think the big reason I wanted to put that in there was we didn't do an inventory of nestings or, or nests or bee nests in people's lawns. We mm. just captured what was there at a particular point of view, uh, particular point in time. So essentially, what we had was a little snapshot of the biodiversity at that yard. It'd be really, really interesting if in future years we can actually quantify how many species are living in these yards. Mm. And that's a much more meticulous, a much more methodical type of sampling event. Uh, you know, we would even doing 20 homes would in the span of a week would be ridiculously impossible without a, a large crew working uh, to actually collect that type of data. So until we can actually say like, yes, bees are living here, they're using this space frequently, this is their nesting and feeding habitat uh, and have a measure of abundance. Um, I don't think we can conclusively say that NOMO may impacted uh, citywide abundances and diversity. We just see them more in these in these habitats that haven't been mowed. Right. And I, I just want to I just want to say this again, because I think this is a really interesting point. The result of no mo may could have been that we just saw the bees more frequently. It's not that there actually was an increase in richness or abundance as a result of this. I'm hesitant to answer that only because, you know, I, I think there is increased bee activity in no mow lawns mm -hmm. relative to unmowed areas that we can say confidently but whether you know the abundance or the frequency of a particular species can be detected we can't say that conclusively with this data set that mm -hmm. requires more longitudinal data So what is the long-term plan for doing work like this? Is it just to, is it just to have a bigger bee collection or is there a, a bigger <laughs> sort of plan for this? No, I think the big plan here is community education. You know, I, I, I don't anticipate ever getting a paper into science or nature with, with this type of hook. But at the same time, I think the more valuable thing to me is making sure that the community that we call home uh, is aware of the little things in their backyard that are playing really important roles in things like pollination. And, and I, I really don't care about, you know, having a larger bee collection or anything like that. I, you know, every time I finish a study, I take my representative sample and then I ship everything else off to a museum so it sits in a proper place to 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 live. Uh, so that's not really the goal. I don't want to curate bees. I want to make sure that we know who's here and what the key players are in our community and how to best protect them and make them as integral part of our you know human community as possible uh, in in a small city like Appleton. Well, and by <clears throat> doing live sampling, you're certainly not increasing the bee collection. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, how easy? Well, I guess, you know, my question was going to be how easy would it be to do this sort of survey again in the future? The idea mm -hmm. being you'd want to do it again and again and again. How, how, how easy is it going to be to do this again? You know, I think we learned a lot 
uh, this year. Um, <clears throat> and there was a lot of concern working with the city about this particular project. And so we went back and forth with uh, older persons trying to figure out, okay, what's the right policy? Uh, because Appleton has this policy of a tall lawn ordinance where basically your personal lawn cannot exceed eight inches before you get a citation. Hmm. Uh, and so we had to have that waived for the month of May as part of this project. So we had to be in constant communication with our city officials to essentially get this project to go. Um, and a lot of people were like, well, you know, it's going to attract all sorts of vermin and mites and uh, potentially ticks and disease. And we scoured the literature and, you know, we presented some other studies with folks from folks down over in Massachusetts, uh, folks do, uh, studies down out in England. Um, and, you know, all of them served as evidence to convince our local officials to, officials to let us do this. The advantage of having done this, this work, I think, is that it makes it a little bit easier to do again next year. And it also now that we have concrete data from our no mo may sampling we can we can say like look this really helped uh looks like it could potentially be helping our bee populations let's collect additional data and expand it out and figure out uh if we if we can actually uh see a long-term trend not a one-year snapshot picture do you have any advice for people who might want to try this in their own hometowns yeah, I think, you know, my my one piece of advice was if you're like listening to this podcast and you're thinking, yeah, this sounds really cool. I want to be able to do this in Detroit or I want to be able to do this in El Paso, Texas or whatever, um, wherever. Just one of the things that I would suggest is get to know your city officials early. Uh, you know, get familiarized with what your city regulations are and have often and frequent discussions with them, because ultimately a project like this and more and more with urban ecology projects require a lot of integration and, and talking to and establishing uh, a good rapport with your city officials in order to make good science happen. Um, you know, one of the really cool things about doing a project like this is you don't have to go to the field in some exotic location. For me, going to the field is picking up a bug net and going outside to a local park. And that's valid field work. And that's important field work. Um, and, it yields, it, and it yields really, really cool data. So, you know, I encourage people to try it, but do it with, with the, the, the precaution that it is going to take a lot of work with uh, city officials and citizen scientists to do something like this effectively. Do you think you help change city officials' perceptions of no more May? Sure, I sure hope so. I've been working with, you know, and I've been pulling my hair out a little bit with a few of our older persons that were like, no, I like my perfectly manicured lawn and that's never going to change. Uh, and there's other ways that I can help the bees. And, and, that's, and that's all true and that's all important. But I think, you know, this is a very easy way that helps people wrap their minds around an important ecological question and an important conservation question. Uh, and so, and then people get excited about it because this is something very practical that you can do in your own backyard just by being lazy. <laughs> and so that's, that's the fun part about this. Um, you know, I think 
there's a downside to it too in that like at the end of the month you're gonna have to mow that lawn <laughs> uh and you know we had some exciting lawns here in appleton some people had three feet tall three foot tall grass and that's just impressive how productive some of these yards can be i went around some houses and collected uh bags and bags of uh, grass clippings for like 50 homes around Appleton who requested this uh, from me. And, you know, there, I went to, I got to one guy's yard and there were 15 bags, like full size, like 30 gallon bags of, uh, of grass clippings ready for me to take. And I just, I was blown away. I mean, this guy had a hay field in his yard for a month. Why did you collect their grass clippings? Would they have had to pay for the city to pick it up otherwise? Like what? The city actually charges four dollars a bag mm. uh, to compost grass clippings uh, and feed them into our biosolids compost. Um, so, in order to uh, sort of get around that, the city didn't waive that four dollar fee, but instead we found local community gardens that wanted compost and mulch, and so I picked up those bags from those fifty homes, and so you know a few trailer loads over a couple of days. Uh, on June 1st and June 2nd. And uh, I took them to community gardens and put them in their mulch piles. <laughs> it was a, it was a fun project and a big learning experience. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, make it, preparing a report right now for our city council that, or in our municipal services committee. And it's coming up and I, I, I almost want to troll our, our, our city council a little bit. So I filled my report with about a dozen bee puns in there uh <laughs> just to, to get 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 back at them just a little bit for some of the headaches that they put me through I want to thank Israel del Toro for taking the time to talk with us. He currently has two papers in process describing his work with the bees of Appleton. Keep an eye out for those because Israel is indeed a somebody in the world of bees. Do you want to create space for bees and have a nicely trimmed yard? There's a simple solution for you. Mow every two weeks instead of every week. Research from the U.S. Forest Service has shown that mowing your lawn every two weeks will increase the number of bees and the number of lawn flowers available to them as forage. Mowing less often is a practical, economical, and time-saving way to help bees in your own yard. So mow every two weeks, the bees will thank you. Results may vary by location and additional maintenance practices. Reducing pesticide use, planting native flowers, and providing nesting sites all contribute to a healthy backyard bee community. Thank you for joining me once again on the Bee Report. Another episode will be coming your way in the next few weeks. If you need more Bee Report sooner than that, 
sign up for the weekly newsletter at thebereport.com. And have a great weekend.